listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. I trust you have been thoroughly encouraged this morning. I live about three and a half miles from church, and uh, even this morning, um, it's about time... I have about enough time to listen to one or two songs. And uh, this morning, uh, the ones I selected were reminders of those particular truths that we just sang about. I need those, but not just in my car by myself. And I am so thankful that God, in his design for the church and for his design for my life, designed it such that on a weekly basis, you can gather with other people who believe the same thing and rehearse them together in the assembly. Because we need to be reminded by other people of those truths. Uh, a while back I read a, some sort of book and there was one point that it said, uh, willpower is not on will call. And what it meant by this is that as you go through the day, at least for me, the willpower to accomplish things, to see things uh, uh, finalized and even sometimes faith in my God as, as I get more tired Sometimes it wanes, and sometimes going to bed at night, it's like, oh, it's easy for the faith to be weak. For me personally, I am reminded every morning, it seems as if it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, for his compassions fail not, great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And he gives you that sustaining grace to go through another day. But a special thing is that on the first day of the week, he can sustain me another week because I get to do it with God's people. And that's why it's so important that we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. And that we come and remind ourselves of these truths weekly and daily so that we can wait for that. Uh, and did you catch that last verse of that one song? I don't think I'd sung that one. When it talks about the arch, archangel coming and sounding. Or I hadn't sung it in a long time. And hey, he's coming. And we don't know when. Wouldn't it be great if it was before the end of this service this morning? And we could be re- reunited with our loved ones. Uh, Maranatha, even so Lord Jesus, quickly come. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. The text that Josh read just a few moments ago. This morning we return to this series in the book of Romans that we started now a number of weeks ago. Lord willing, today we will continue to make progress as we investigate these first eight verses of Romans 3. Join me as I ask for God's help in this message. Father, you know the struggle I had even as I tried to discern exactly what Paul meant in these words, but more importantly, what you meant through these words. 
You know the, the battle so often it is for us to just discern and meditate on your word and discern what it says. And today, Father, I ask that you would help our congregation understand what's going on in these eight verses. Would you allow us to get the nutrients and the truths that you are communicating that would help complete us? Would your Holy Spirit actively work? If there are people who are within the sound of my voice today that have never become followers of Jesus, Lord, would you use the words that I say in your own special way to draw them to yourself? And then for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are so prone to uh, fall, Lord, would you get us back up and would you help us by the end of this message to be rejoicing again in the gospel that you have provided for us. And may we be strengthened in our faith toward you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few weeks ago in December, uh, I was talking to somebody here in the auditorium and was reminded during that, I think, first or second week of December, how that many Decembers before that, the U.S. troops encountered the Battle of the Bulge. Many of you know it was, of course, 1944, six months after the Allies had invaded uh, France there to uh, rescue uh, Western and uh, Eastern Europe, That, of course, was one of the greatest acts of deliverance taking place in our world. As they were doing this, now six months later, the Nazis threw up a huge obstacle, and it was called the Battle of the Bulge. What the Nazis tried to do was they tried to push toward the coast in one particular area, split the Allied forces in order really to... uh, cut down and really uh, eliminate the threat of the the U.S. and the Allied forces invading into Germany. Thankfully, through the valiant efforts of the Allies, the tide was stopped. Similarly, the letter of Romans is an account of the greatest rescue plan of the ages, the gospel. God is delivering humanity from the clutches of sin. Paul is writing this letter, explaining the gospel, and as we have made our way through Romans 1 and Romans 2, we've made progress, but in today's text, the Apostle Paul identifies a counterattack. He brings it up himself And he defends the gospel against it. He answers two attacks, or you could say two objections here. He does it in a a simple way here in Romans 3. But later, he'll defend it even more extensively in Romans 8 and Romans 9 through 11. Our text today has nine questions in it. When Josh read it, I'm not sure if you caught that. 
Nine different questions. In fact, it's often referred to what Paul's doing here in his letter. It's referred to as a diatribe. A diatribe is it's as if a heckler in the middle of Paul's writing interrupts him, interrupts his speech or his writing, and says, but what about this? And what about this? So what Paul does is he throws the questions out there and he answers them himself. Now, as you come to this eight verses, it's complicated. In fact, one of the commentators that didn't really encourage me as I was diving into this text said this, Romans 3, 1 through 8 is one of the most difficult texts in the whole letter. So I'm like, oh, great, okay. And it was, it was difficult, and it's still difficult. What had Paul been doing, and what does this text, how does it contribute to the whole letter? Well, Paul had explained up to this point, what, is it, what had he been doing? Well, in the first part of Romans, because i got to do a little bit of review because we haven't been in here for the last three or four weeks. In the first part of Romans 1, Paul gave the implications of knowing the gospel, how the gospel had changed him and his whole trajectory, and how he writes to a group of people who had come to know the gospel and how grace and peace had been multiplied to them. Then he gave, really, how it had changed all of the different focuses of his life, how he had now an outward focus, an upward focus, uh, an inward focus, He gave what the gospel is, it's God's power to save humanity. In fact, to save any of us, all of us, if we will look to him. It's God's power revealed. So he lays that out in the key verses of Romans, which is Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. But then he began to show how all of us have a great need for the gospel. All of us are under sin. All of us are idolaters. All of us have replaced God. And as a result of replacing God, we have set someone else in control. It's us. And that idolatry has led to our own immorality. And as Paul established those truths, then he goes after a first, you could say, objection. Note when someone starts to point out your own sin and show you that you're a sinner, what's your natural response? You begin to point the finger at somebody what? Somebody else. You want to just push away the argument. And that's what Paul, first of all, handles in chapter 2. He says, stop pointing the finger at other people. All of the Gentiles are under wrath, And not only that, all the Jews are under wrath as well. We're all under sin, and all of us need the spiritual birth. And in chapter 2, where we were last time we were in Romans, Paul shows how it is not your pedigree, or for the Jews, it was not their circumcision that was going to avail anything to get them to God. Paul now, as we come to Romans chapter 3, brings up another counterattack. We often do this. When we start to see our own sin, we first of all start pointing the finger at other people. And when we realize that we can't do that, 
then we start to point the finger at who? It's your fault. You're the one who's doing all of this. And he does this with a question. And that question is this. What about being a Jew in circumcision? Was that all for nothing? Look what it says in verse number one. Then what advantage has the Jew? And what is the value of circumcision? There could have been some people who were reading Paul's letter. And as they're reading Paul's letter, some of them were saying, so what's the use in being a Jew? What was God thinking? It's his problem. What was he thinking in all of this? We've, we were given the law. We tried to obey it. And it's not helping at all. Are all the Old Testament promises, all the Old Testament and all those promises that he gave to Israel and how they could be a great nation and he was going to give them land, was that all for nothing? Not only that, all the guys are like, I had that surgery, okay? Was that all for nothing? The objections that come up here are a subtle way of attacking the integrity of the gospel. You and I, when we get upset with our own brokenness, we point the finger at other people, and then we point the finger at God, and we see how Paul answers these objections in these eight verses. What was the first objection? It's this. Is God faithful to his promises? Does God keep his promises? Hadn't God made a lot of promises to Israel? I mean, read Genesis through Malachi. You read about what he tells the patriarchs like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all these different promises to Moses and to Joshua. Weren't they a special nation that God chose? These questions in verse 1 investigate the question of what's the use of being a Jew? If being a Jew and having circumcision doesn't matter, Paul, as you just said in Romans chapter 2, what does? What does matter? Because a lot of Jews had thought up to this point that they had Jewish privilege, they could boast in it. I'm a child of Abraham. Many thought that they could rely on that. They shouldn't have, because you remember John the Baptist, when he said to certain Pharisees, he said this, he says, God can raise of these stones and make children of Abraham if I want to. Is there any use for what the Jews had in the Old Testament? Was Paul simply trashing the Jews because they had rejected him? Because up to this point, In Romans, Romans chapter 2, he had said that Jewish pedigree and circumcision doesn't get one into the family, but it is a spiritual birth and that how everybody is under judgment. These questions in verse 1 were in the minds of some people naturally. That's where their minds went. But an even deeper question then that is this, is whether God is truly faithful to his promises, particularly to them. I mean, honestly, 
If God gave a bunch of promises to Israel and he's not keeping his end of the bargain, is this salvation, is he going to be faithful to you? Is he really going to be someone that you can trust in? Because there were certain people that were questioning this. Now, some may have thought, when Paul asked that question in verse 1, is there any privilege to being a Jew or any of this? Probably the natural response for some of us were like, nope, no advantage, all under sin. However, notice his response. He doesn't go there. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, much in every way. He gives a definitive response. Then he gives a primary reason why. Look what he says at the end of verse 2. He says this, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when you see that word to begin with, oftentimes you think it causes us to think that Paul's about to give a long list. To begin with, I'm going to give you this and this and this. Really, the way he's saying it is, to begin with, I'm going to primarily tell you about this. Now, later on, he'll give you a few other reasons. But the advantage that the Jews had was this. It says that they were given the oracles of God. Literally, the Jewish nation were a privileged group of people because they got literally the very words of God. And notice Paul uses the word entrusted. And the word entrusted carries the idea of stewardship. They were given the stewardship of the word of God. God chose Israel to be, you could say, the librarians of God's words. And they were also the nursery of his son. Okay, so you have God's written words, which you could say are the books of your Bible. You could say that God's embodiment of the word, his son, Jesus Christ, both of them were given to Israel. They were given to Israel to be stewards of. Why was this so, why was this such a privilege? Why was this so important? Paul will later say in Romans, he'll say this, so faith comes by hearing in hearing through the word of Christ. The only way anyone will ever get saved is they have to hear the what? The word. In fact, he'll later say, how shall they hear without a what? A preacher. The only way people will be able to enter into eternity with God, they have to hear the word of God. And the nation of Israel were the ones who were given the word of God initially. They were the stewards of it. It was an incredible advantage to being a Jew. For those of you in this room, all of you, because you're listening to me, you speak English, okay? It's a privilege to know the English language, isn't it? One of the reasons why it's a privilege is you and I have the word of God in our tongue. I mean, it's a beautiful story. You read just the history of how we got the word in the English language and those who suffered for it at the outset of it. It's an incredible story. But because you and I have the word of God in our language, that's how you and I came to know Christ. He opened up our eyes. We heard the word. We learned it. We came to Christ. The Jews were the initial custodians of the word of God. 
But here Paul begins to identify, you could say, the elephant in the room. Why was it that so many Jews had rejected the word? Now, maybe not they would say the old covenant. They said, oh, we've been following Moses. However, they weren't really following the spirit of what those were. But they had not, a majority of them, embraced the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. During Paul's day, some Jews had come to Jesus, but most of them had rejected him. I think the underlying question here was this, okay? When Paul throws these questions out, has God abandoned his promises for the Jews for salvation because they were unfaithful? Look what it says in verse 3. He says this, what if some were unfaithful? Does that mean, uh, does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Notice this goes after this. That means God's not faithful. Because didn't he say he was going to do all of this? And look how Paul responds in verse 4. By no means. Paul answers very clearly here. But he'll explain, and just so you'll know, he says it. And remember, as, I, as we're studying Romans, the letter, most of them, when they read Romans, they read it in one sitting, didn't they? They, like, they read the book of Romans. I'm preaching through it, and I'm just doing little sections. Paul is going to explain that clearly in Romans 9 through 11. He's going to explain how he has not forsaken Israel and that he does have promises and his faithfulness is on the line and he will do what he says he's going to do. That's why he stops here and he quotes David. Look what it says in verse 4, at the end of verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may just be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You say, what's, who's he quoting from? Some of you may have rem, rem, reminded yourself or even looked in your cross-references of what this is referring to. This is from David's confession with Bathsheba. Remember when Nathan confronts him? And David is repenting of his sin and all of his own covetousness, his murder, his immorality. And he says, God, I've been unjust. You have been just all the way through this. You're the one who does everything right. You are faithful. You are just. And that is never a question. And here, the Jews' patriarch, or you could say one of their great ones, David, affirms, I'm the one who's in the wrong. You're the one who's always in the right. And Paul, right here in Romans, as he's beginning to present the gospel, and he begins to put the vice on our own sin, it's easy for us to point the finger at others and then point the finger at God and say, oh, God's the problem here. And here, the apostle Paul says, yeah, you may start questioning that, but let me tell you something. There is no problem with the faithfulness of God. When you and I begin to run into difficult situations. And I guarantee that if we were to walk around this room and explain the trials that are represented by the different people in this room, you got some incredibly difficult things. 
And when you go through difficult things or you see the depravity of man, it is easy for you to begin to question whether God is what? Faithful. Is God faithful? And we often begin to question God's character, his justice, his mercy. That's our sinful bent. And as Paul shares this gospel, here the objections start to come. And Paul is putting in words and questions in this heckler's responses what you and I often do. But then he also responds this, God is faithful through all of this. He has a plan, and as you and I will see when we get to Romans 9 through 11, he is going to accomplish his plan. You and I have only seen half the story. And I don't know, I I, I talked about this when we were in our Ecclesiastes series When it comes to understanding the plans of God, you and I are still elementary mathematicians. You and I do not have all the math to understand all of God's plans and all of God's promises. But we have to take him at his word. We've got to believe him. Even yesterday, I'm reading through the book of Genesis, and I came to, remember the story of Joseph? And he had incredibly hard things happen to him. He sold into slavery. Not only that, he, 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 Bible talks about him being led with shackles into Egypt. He gets a job, I mean, as a slave. Uh, and then he gets in trouble even in that job because he does what's right. And then he goes to prison. And then he's in prison and then he's forgotten. And no doubt, It would have been, if there was anyone who could question the faithfulness of God, it should have been this guy. But then God in his whole planning had this beautiful canvas that he was designing. And it was this, to save many people alive. And it was finally later in life when uh, when Joseph is restored to his brothers and he's able to bring all of them to Egypt so they could survive the remaining five years of the famine. And basically he tells them, you know what? You meant evil against me, but God, he meant it for good. He had a plan in all this. He is faithful in all of this. He is one that we can trust. And God's faithfulness to Israel and sparing them from that famine and God's faithfulness in every instance is going to be at some point affirmed. I love how Joshua states it. After, I mean, if there was any guy who got to see the trouble of Israel and the brokenness of Israel with the exodus, with the the wandering in the wilderness, all of that, but what did he say at the end of his life? I love this. He says, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And as a reminder, all of you, one day you're going to say that same statement. Unless Jesus comes back during the message today, okay? Uh, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that God, the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Let me just say, this morning, if you're here today and you're in any way questioning the faithfulness of God, Paul is going to answer that through this book. But you may be bringing these objections and 
You say, what's the answer to all of this? When you get confused and when you can't find the answer of why he's doing this, I'll tell you what I'm doing in Romans. I'll say, keep reading Romans. And you may be here today and you're questioning, does God really keep his promises? I would tell you this, keep reading your Bible. And you may not be able to understand everything, but if you'll keep reading and you'll keep pursuing and you'll keep trusting one day, you know what? And even when you get there, we're going to continue to learn when we're in his presence, but learn to trust him. And here, Paul identifies the elephant in the room because people are asking, is God faithful? Is this someone I can trust? That's objection number one. Objection number two is this, okay? Objection number two is, is God twisted in his plans? Is God twisted in his plans? I mean, this second second objection seems to go after God's whole plan of salvation. I mean, if you really studied salvation and how God elects people, he predestines them, he elects them, he calls them, he justifies them, and you start studying this whole beautiful diamond of salvation and how that justification is not by our own works. It is by faith in the person of Jesus Christ who was literally God who became man. You know what a lot of the world thinks that is? Moronic. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so what can happen is, as you begin to understand the gospel and how God does all of this justification by faith and not by you trying to earn it and all of this, it's easy to say, I don't understand that whole principle. This is just all twisted. How could a God credit his righteousness to our account and give us eternal life? It's hard to understand grace because you are someone who is so selfish, you want to pay for everything yourself. You think you can do it. A human response to the gospel is this, no way, if God forgives like that, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins, you gotta do something for it. You can't, I mean, Sometimes I'll ask the question, oh, if God forgives all your sins, then does that mean you can just keep sinning as much as you want? Because, I mean, I think there was one person who said, uh, if God really loves forgiving and I really love sinning, man, the world is a wonderful spot. And what they can do is they can begin to look at grace and God's forgiveness and say, that whole plan is kind of twisted. It's not right. We don't naturally align with God's purposes because, as I said to you, they are beyond us. We don't understand all his plans, nor can we fully. But Paul will combat a similar question in more detail when we get to Romans 6. You remember in Romans 6, famous passage, shall we continue to sin that grace may what? Abound. And he says, God forbid. In these closing verses of our text, notice there's these two questions, or two of these questions seem to go down the same vein. Look what it says in verse 5. 
But if our unrighteousness, if us doing unrighteous things serves to show God's righteousness, what shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Hey, if, if God's getting glory, and if, if God really enjoys all this showing of his great mercy, then hey, and since my part is really to magnify it through my own sin, I mean, that's all twisted. And he's throwing these questions in here. And what Paul says is this, I speak in a human way. That's not right. And then he says it again in verse 7. Look what he says, 7 and going into verse 8. He says, but if, I, but if through my lie, my doing the wrong things and living a lie, if through my lie God's truth abounds for his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If I'm participating in this beautiful plan of redemption and he's getting displayed his glory through my sinfulness and he's saving me out of it, why has he punished me for, for doing this? And why not? And then he says that, that question. And why not just keep doing evil that good may what? That good may come. If my wrongdoing will ultimately magnify God's power to save, why not keep sinning? Why does God do this this way? God's plans are twisted. Seeing that, how could a God like that be in charge and judge the world? How in the world could that happen? These wrong teachings were evidently accusations that Paul had been encountering as he spread the gospel in his day. Remember, he got saved on the road to Damascus. He began to take the gospel through the known world. And where did he start at? He started in the synagogues when he arrived in the different towns. And as he arrived, arrived in the different towns, what they would do is they would hear his gospel and say, oh, it's justification by faith. It doesn't matter if I've kept all these laws. And they, they began to attack him for that. And they said, oh, your gospel is, oh, I see it is. It's, it's, it's twisted and it's salvation is by grace. And that means you can just keep on sinning. Oh, and they just discounted what he was saying. Those who reject God in his revelation what he says at the end of our text, their condemnation is just who begin to throw up these obstacles. God is always faithful. He is always just, and he is always perfect in his plan. And you may not understand it, but the more you keep reading, the more you will understand it. So what's happening in Romans 3, 1 through 8 is God has just put the Gentiles and the Jews in the vice of God's judgment. All of you, Jews, Gentiles, everybody in here is under God's judgment. We're all guilty. And what do we like to do at that point? When we start seeing our sin, we start pointing the finger at who? Other people first. Oh, look at their sin. And in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, stop pointing the finger. You who think the other people are doing wrong, do you not do the same things? And so when he shuts our mouth and we realize that we're guilty just like the other person, what do we do next? Ah, it's him. 
He's not faithful. All of this plan of salvation, it's twisted. Who did that in the garden? When Adam and Eve sinned, the woman who you what? Gave me. So he, he, number one points at the woman, the woman whom you gave me. We deflect, we point the finger at other people. That is what happens here. And we must all come to face, come face to face with our own sin. Don't point the finger at God. But you need to remind yourself that God is faithful to his promise. And those of you who have still questions about his faithfulness, go and read Romans 9 through 11. And that his plans are not right. Okay, what's going to happen? The more you understand the gospel, it's easy to point your finger at God and say, I don't understand this election thing. I don't understand this calling and how you don't require me to bring any of my own righteousness. I have to rely on God's righteousness. The more you understand it and the more astounding it becomes, it's easy through your sinful nature to accuse him of being twisted in this when ultimately all you need to do is abandon yourself and depend on his son, Jesus Christ, to save you. He is your answer. And that's why one of the beautiful things about, uh, I mean, we've been in the gutter here in Romans 2 and the beginning of Romans 3. But by the time, and, 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 and not to be a downer, but next week it just gets worse, okay? Because <laughs> we're going to end with this, there is none righteous, no, not what? No, not one. But then what does he do by the end of Romans chapter 3? He says, but let me tell you about Jesus. He is the answer. He is the faithful one. He is the one who fulfilled God's plan. What our job is this? To keep reading. Learn to trust him. Face the facts of our own sin. Stop pointing at others. Stop pointing at God and begin to point the finger at our own sin. And when you begin to see your own sin and that you can do nothing to save yourself, there's only one place to look and that's outside of yourselves. And you look to him all the ends of the earth and be saved for I am God and there is none else. So look to Jesus. Today, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.